feel I've realized now that this is kind of an awkward transition, so I'm just gonna go with it. <laughs> so speaking of gymnastics, <coughs> how about Simone Biles? Man, what a story, right? <coughs> you know, as I watched uh before the Olympics came on, uh you could watch the you could watch the qualifying rounds for US gymnastics. And I mean, I kind of knew who Simone was. Like I remember from the last Olympics, but I don't really follow gymnastics except for when it comes to the Olympics. So, uh, but I was watching the qualifying rounds. Do you watch? Do you uh, so Simone Biles won like, I don't know, a million gold medals last time or something and you know I was actually surprised because our kids went to gymnastics camp and they were like we can't wait for the Olympics Simone Biles is going to be competing and I'm like oh really like because usually you think I think of the Olympics like gymnasts as like kind of one and done deals but apparently she hasn't been done and she's even gotten better and they've named things after her and uh you know and and I was watching the qualifying and you know as a former athlete not in that sport I sort of have a lot of respect for the level at which she's competing uh, but I really hated the way that the commentators were talking about her so like it was like first of all the camera was on her like 50% of the time and like um, they would they would be like now, here's, here's, here's the class act, here's the uh, history making, here's the greatest of all time gymnast, and if she did something good, uh, they were like, and that's what we expect of Simone Biles. And if she took a step or did something off, they were like, man, I don't know what's going on with her today. And it was like this, uh, you know, they were they were, the way they were talking about it, I really hated because it felt like to me that if I was Simone Biles, there was nothing that I could do to actually win. If you, if the commentators expect you to be the greatest and you do something great, but it's what they expect, you don't win. And if you mess up, even the slightest step, it's like, I don't know what's going on with her today. And I really hated that. Um, but after this, after she dropped out of the competition, um, I have been trying to like listen to and talk to some former gymnasts. And uh, I was talking to Melanie, and she had this whole narrative about Simone and about how people have made Simone, and even in the sport of gymnastics, into this godlike figure that she is like sort of look to as this person who is like the greatest of all time um, and that she's not a god and that this is showing that and that and that she is really a 24 year old <coughs> woman who's awesome at gymnastics but she's not a god she's an amazing athlete she's the greatest of all time perhaps but she isn't a god <coughs> in our passage this morning Moses and Aaron are perhaps the greatest Israelites of all time. They are the ones who convinced Pharaoh to let their people go. 
They are the ones who led the people out of Egypt through the Red Sea on dry land. They are the ones who received the law of God at Sinai and the ones who led the people through the wilderness to the promised land. And the people, the people have made them into something like gods. Did you catch the people's complaints in our passage this morning? <clears throat> if only we had died by the hand of the Lord in Egypt, where we sat around with our flesh pots, greatest word in the Old Testament, we sat around and ate our fill of, of meat, we, ate, we sat by the flesh pots and ate our fill of bread, but you, talking to Moses and Aaron, have brought us out here to kill us with hunger. And Moses and Aaron reply, what are we? You are not complaining against us, but against the Lord. See, the people of God have made this shift they made their leaders into God-like figures, blaming them for their hunger and the place that they found themselves in as a nation. But Moses and Aaron totally deny their ability to solve Israel's problems. They pray and hear from God instead, and they tell the people, your complaint isn't against us, but it is rather against God. It is God who hears their complaints and sends them quail and bread to feed them. And I've been pondering this in light of Simone's choice to opt out of the Olympics for the past several days. And what Simone's choice was for her and what Simone's choice was for us. And I think that maybe Simone's decision was a kind of refusal. A refusal to be the gymnastics god that the people want her to be. That they've made her out to be. It's an acceptance that she is human too, like the rest of us, and that the best choice she can make is a choice that protects her body and her mental health. I wondered what her decision means for the rest of us, though. What message it sends. How Simone may have actually made some of us think about our own mental health when she prioritized hers. That if Simone Biles, the greatest of all time, can take a day off on the biggest stage in the biggest moment, potentially, of her career. Who, who can't afford to take a day off? If she can take a day off at this moment, who can't take a day off at any other moment? Simone is now a leader, not just because she can do tumbling passes that no one else can, and not just because she uh, is, has honed her sport and her skill like no one else before, but maybe now more importantly, she is a leader because she has left the well-traveled path of pushing through the pain to perform. 
Simone Biles is more than what she can do in gymnastics. And now we all know that she knows that too. And maybe some of us are getting this amazing gospel message, right? That we are more than what we do. That the people of God are more than what they do. Egypt told the people of God that their power was in their performance, that their value was in what they produced. But rather than a tyrant who will take over a territory or a people to re-enslave them, God does this amazing thing for God's people. God gives them, rather, the gift of life. And a part of that gift is the gift of rest. The Israelites, though, have a hard time with letting go of their identity in being found in what they achieve. They had a hard time not doing the work. Some of us as God's people, even today, exchange the bonds of Egypt for the bonds of earning our salvation. We make working for the Lord as tiresome, all-consuming, and endless as working for Egypt. We work seven days a week. We make our life. We earn what we have. We accomplish this thing. The people are free, though. They are no longer in Egypt. They no longer have to toil for the, their food. And this passage is reminiscent of Genesis 1 and the creation narrative where God provides food for this people God has just created. This is a recreation story. The people don't have to toil for their food. God is giving it to them. It's being delivered in honey wafers from the ground and quail falling from the sky like an ancient sort of Postmates deal. Delivered. No dishes. There might have been dishes, I don't know. In the extended version of our passage today, we see how the people, though, have the hardest time with this kind of provision. They have the hardest time gathering the amount they're supposed to gather for the day. Uh, not gathering on the Sabbath day. How almost every other verse in this passage that we didn't read has to deal with the people, how the people are having such a hard time obeying the rules of this new creation that you gather enough for the day. And you gather twice as much on Friday for the Sabbath. And you rest on the Sabbath and you don't gather. And this meant for the people no cooking. And it meant not leaving their tents. And it meant not checking their emails. It meant rest. Not achieving, not earning, not accomplishing. 
But we, like the Israelites, like to earn what we receive. We think that if we put in the work, we will deserve the rest. If we make the money, then we will deserve to spend it. But it's all one big tally. Uh, on, for pizza movie night last week, we were watching the movie Ella Enchanted. Who's seen Ella Enchanted? It's kind of funny. I haven't seen it in years before this, but it's like a Cinderella story, but like with all the costumes of like the Renaissance Festival, but like set in like today. So there's like a Renaissance mall, and I mean, it's kind of, there. there's all kinds of jokes in there. It's funny. But one that I actually laughed out loud about was Ella's father they said what his job is. His job is he's an abacus programmer. <laughs> an abacus programmer. That's awesome. I feel like, though, that we all act like our own abacus programmers, measuring the work we put in versus the benefits that come out. We're all kind of keeping those tallies. Comes to things like our paychecks. Are we getting paid the right amount for the amount that we're working, that we're putting in? Our personal relationships, if we're investing in this person, are we getting the return, the appropriate return for that investment? When we go shopping or trying to buy something online, are we, is that a good deal? How is it made? Where is it made? You know, is it quality? How long is it gonna last? We're all constantly searching to find this balance in the books of what is fair. This is somewhat the question behind so many political debates as well. Now, uh, here's how I'm defining politics, just so you know. I'm defining politics as the way we go about living in community together, okay? From, From welfare programs to masking mandates to uh, neighbors who live in tents, to the tax code. What is fair seems to be the eternal question, and we don't all agree because we see these things differently. Fairness, it turns out, is fairly subjective. Now, if you've been a parent or a child, you've probably heard or spoken this very linchpin of a life lesson at some point. You know what I'm talking about. Life isn't fair. What'd you say? Yeah. Life isn't fair. I mean, we teach it. Life isn't fair. We learn that life isn't fair, but then we go about trying to make it fair because, you know, if there is a scarcity of resource, We want to have what we need. I suspect that the people of God felt there was a scarcity of resource in the wilderness, in the desert, and particularly around food and water. And in Egypt, in slavery, there was a scarcity of resource. There is this saying, you can take the people of God out of Egypt, but it's much harder to take Egypt out of the people of God. 
And this is what Jesus is concerned about. When the people follow him across the water in our other passage, they came for bread, for the dough, for the manna. They had had their fill through, though it was this miraculous sign that Jesus had done a little bit earlier in the chapter, taking five loaves and two fish and sharing it among so many with 12 baskets left over. But Jesus calls the people out. He's like, you didn't come and look for me because you saw a sign. You came and looked for me because you ate the bread. But the bread was never meant to be the end in and of itself. It was rather the medium of God's provision. The bread was a sign that God was present with the people, that God was present in their lives, that the bread spoke of something deeper still, a relationship, a covenant, an image implanted on the people, the people of God who were made in God's image. Egypt was this massive empire. They used slave labor to make it great. Not at all similar to now. But once the slaves were no longer enslaved, the people still had a work ethic that would kill them and sacrifice their bodies and mental health on the vault, I mean, the altar of production and achievement and success. Freedom from bodily shackles doesn't make us free from mental ones. And this is the very moment where the manna arrives. Isn't it wonderful that this manna, this provision of God, is so strange. It is so unusual for the people that they look at it and they don't even know what it is. They're like, what is that? (sighs) We've been complaining against God because we'd have nothing to eat. What is that? What is that? This substance that rotted... After a day, if it was gathered on Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, or Thursday, but on Friday it would last for two days, this substance that would melt by the afternoon, if not gathered, but has also existed in the Ark of the Covenant for thousands of years and maybe to this day. What is it is such a valid name? And I think that's what we wonder about provision today as well. I got this great new job. What is it? I found affordable housing. What is it? We found a possible Kaleo gathering space. What is it? I've been sober for two months. What is it? I was super hungry, and then someone gave me some vanilla wafers. What is it? Or nilla wafers, what are they called? These confuse me, because my mom always says uh, vanilla for manila, and then I'm like trying to correct her in my head. Okay. Are these things God's provision, or are they accidents? Are they intentional blessings? 
or are they the natural consequences of good choices? Are they the result of our faith or science? Have I been healed by God or modern medicine? Is this a sign or is this more of a science? Did insects excrete honey wafer-like nutrition or did God provide? For too long, Christians have made signs into things that they only can be signs if they're not understood. That God's provision has to be a miracle that is unexplainable by science. That can't be, it's got to be, it's got to defy the laws of nature. And that's why so many Christians have a problem with science. Science has seemed to be the opposite of God for some strange reason. But whether or not the manna and quail were natural phenomenons, explainable by science or not, it was seen by the people of God as the provision of God and the answer to the people's need. It was a sign and it might have been a science as well. But that doesn't diminish it at all. Signs, you might say, only come to those who are looking for them, only are seen by the people who are looking, who have on these lenses to see them. Manna, you might argue, only comes to those who ask for it. What Jesus did earlier in John's cha- John chapter 6, feeding the crowds with five loaves and two fish, he says was a sign, the substance of God's presence. A sign is a sign if it speaks to the deep and truthful reality of God's presence and action in our lives. And we can see it as such. A sign is a sign if it saves part of God's image that is being lost. Sometimes God's image is lost when our bodies are enslaved to Egypt. Substances, work, U.S. gymnastics, or other things. And sometimes it is our minds that are enslaved to things like this. But when we are enslaved, we cannot rest. There is no Sabbath. But God rested after doing the work of creation. Resting is part of the image of God. Jesus makes sure and says this very thing when the people come looking for him after eating the bread. He said, they said, what sign will you do? Our ancestors ate manna in the wilderness. You see how they're using that against Jesus. They're like, we want some more bread, man. Jesus says, I am the bread. I have come to do the will of the Father. And what is the work? Catch this. This is, this is deep. And what is the work that I should lose nothing 
of all that has been given to me. Who is Jesus? He is the image of the invisible God, the image of God. We were created to be the image of God. Could it be that what Jesus meant when he said his work was to lose nothing was that he was speaking of the image of God on earth? Could he be talking about redeeming this image of God in the people of God? That God doesn't want any of God's image to be lost? And that the, God, the image of God is lost when we are enslaved mentally or physically, to the treadmill of production, to the work of programming our own abacuses. When we are enslaved to this notion of fair, but God's image is not one of accountability. This is really offensive. I'm just calling it what it is. God's tax code is all tax credit. God's relationships are all unmerited favor. God's image, the people of God, must rest to actually be an image of this God. If we deserve the rest we've earned, we will never be able to receive it. If we earn the wealth we have, it will never be a gift from God. And I think that is the message of this passage this morning. That life is actually a gift. Moses and Aaron didn't make it rain quail. Simone doesn't have to bow to gymnastics. And we are no longer in Egypt. May we receive this gift of rest. Live faithfully as the image of the God who rested. May it be a sign for us that we also are not gods. When others complain that we are making them starve with our unfaithfulness. I mean, I'm sorry. When we are making them starve with our faithfulness to God by resting, that they wish that God had killed them in Egypt, may we hand their complaints over to God like Moses and Aaron did. When others complain that we aren't doing our duty to our country, if we don't work our off seven days a week, as slaves to this new Egypt, the Pharaoh of consumption and capitalism, may we be reminded that we have been freed from the bondage and called to be the image of God on earth. When others complain that we are letting them down because we have taken a day off, because we prioritize our own mental and physical health, may we remember that we could never save them in the first place because we are not gods. Thank God. And, by the way, our God rested. So, so can we. Let's pray.
God, thank you for your word, for your call, and for the life that you have given us. May this abundant life that you have given us be received as abundance. May we be obedient to the call to rest. May we recognize it as integral to our faithfulness. And may it be a gift, a life-giving gift for us and for the world. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.